Our Father, we praise you this morning for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and we praise you that in his life, we have life. We praise you that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, defiled by all of the unclean things that we had indulged in, by the power of your word, the same word that spoke light into existence, the same word that created the world, by that power, by that word, you spoke life to our dead hearts. And Lord, we praise you that you opened our eyes and caused us to see and, and then instructed us on what it looks like to inhabit your house. And Lord, we thank you for the word that is before us and we pray that it would be a life-giving word. We pray that through the Ten Commandments, you would cause us to feel how we should live before you and that we would be people for whom faith works through love and thereby we keep the commandments that you have given. So Lord, I pray that you would stir up in us a greater love for you, a greater love for our neighbor, and an abiding confidence that the sum of your words is truth and that every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Lord, we pray that you would do these things and we pray that you would cause us to be enraptured by the glory of what you revealed, by the, the substantial power of its truth. Lord, we pray these things would be a rock for our feet. We pray that in the word you would enable us to take refuge. And we pray, Lord, that you would hereby prepare us for whatever we face in coming days. We thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be looking at the Ten Commandments. And on a couple of occasions, uh, what God speaks here at Mount Sinai, uh, these Ten Commandments, on a couple of occasions they're referred to as ten words, even though, as we'll see as we go through, there are actually 13 imperatives here. Uh, so so we'll, we'll, we'll have to sort out how do we get 10 commandments from 13, these 13 imperatives. Um, and, and I think that, that uh, the author of this text, Moses, has structured the text well for us to help us discern how, where the 10 are. Um, but even though there, there are 13 commands... This passage is referred to in Exodus 34, 28 and Deuteronomy 4, 13 as the 10 words. And I think that that's significant in part because there are 10 times in Genesis chapter 1 where, God, where we read, and God said. So these 10 statements of and God said in Genesis 1 are now matched in Exodus 20 by these 10 words. And it is as though, as God speaks the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, he is creating them as a nation. He is creating in them their identity as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so these are life-giving and creative words that are before us. And as I was thinking about what it's like for God to speak the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel... I couldn't help but think of zombies. You know, you know, what, a, you know what a zombie is, right? It's, it, I mean, I don't watch zombie movies, but sometimes you see a commercial or something like that. And um, uh, these, are, these are these dead corpses that are nevertheless somehow alive. And, and that's kind of what we have in the people of Israel, and it's kind of what we have in human beings prior to redemption. You, you've got someone who's part dead and part alive. And at the exodus from Egypt, it, it's as though God gave life to this nation. You know, we've talked as we've gone through Genesis and Exodus about how as they left the land of promise 
and descended into Egypt. It's as, it's as though they went down into the unclean realm of the dead. And then as God brings them up out of Egypt, it's as though he is giving life to these previously dead people. And, and similarly, uh, when, when someone who is spiritually dead, this is why we read Exodus, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 earlier in the service, when someone who is spiritually dead is made alive, it's like a zombie is, is made into a living human being. That's, that's analogous to what's going on in us. Well, you know, if you have dirty shoes, if, if like my kids, you play in the yard, and then uh, you want to come into the house, your mother's probably going to say, take your shoes off. Uh, the, what if you play in the yard barefoot? Well, you're going to have to wash your feet off in the hose before you can come in the house. What if you're a corpse, a leprous corpse, and, and not only do you walk into the house defiled, but body parts are going to be falling off and congealed blood is going to be leaking. It's going to be disgusting. God is not going to let anyone like that into his house. And these 10 words are these life-giving words that make it so that previously dead, previously unclean people can enter into his presence. That, that's, that's really what we have here in Exodus chapter 20. We talked last week about how Exodus 3 through 19 is this unit of text where God appears to Moses in Exodus 3 and tells him, uh, you will worship me on this mountain when I have brought you out. And then Exodus 19, they arrive at the mountain and they worship the Lord there. Now here in Exodus 20, God is preparing the people for what's going to happen at the end of the book. At the end of the book, the tabernacle will be set up and God himself will enter into the tabernacle. And these life-giving words are necessary for God to inhabit his dwelling place, his tabernacle among his people. So in a sense, what we have here in Exodus 20 is a work of new creation. And, and there are analogies, I think, between the way that God creates the world as a cosmic temple, and then he takes up residence there, and then he demands holiness of his image bearer, Adam, who is going to dwell in that temple, and there are forbidden things that Adam must not touch. And now... There, there, we have the people of Israel who it's as though God has done a new creation work in saving them at the exodus from Egypt. And now he's going to give them his tabernacle, which is like a replica of the world that God created. And, and here we have the demand for holiness. And in our case, uh, the, the, the work of salvation that brings about the new creation is Christ's death and resurrection. The, the, the accomplishment of salvation at the cross. And then in our case, we don't have a building where God dwells. We are his house. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, there's a demand for holiness uh, for us. So uh, I think that there, there, there's a strong pattern from creation to exodus to cross, temple, temple to tabernacle to church, and in all three cases, there is this demand for holiness. So God raised Israel from the dead at the Exodus, and at Sinai, he tells them how to live. Th these are not words that are meant to limit how we approach life. These are words that are meant to give us life. Psalm 16, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. If you're going to enjoy the presence of God, this is how you must live what we have before us, before us. So God's prohibitions in Exodus 20 are instructing previously dead people about how to live in the clean realm of life where God is. That's what these, these commandments are doing. And then the last thing I'll say before we, we dive in here is that these 10 commandments are like a table of contents for what's going to follow in Exodus 21 through 23, where you have this initial deposit of laws. And, and really, it's as though these Ten Commandments are an umbrella statement that is going to be fleshed out in particulars and specifics in Exodus 21 through 23. And then you could really extend that to the whole book of Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy is like Moses saying, let me elaborate upon the Ten Commandments for you. Okay, so as I mentioned... There are actually 
13 uh, imperatives here. And, and, and I do think that they rightly come down to 10. But in order to get 10, we're going to have to uh, understand the structure of the text that, that Moses, I think, has built into the passage. And I, I, let me insert a caveat here because um, I feel like I, I sort of owe... Um, I feel bad about what I'm about to do, but you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to, to go into this kind of debate. In fact, I was kind of frustrated with this whole debate of, of uh, how do you enumerate the Ten Commandments? I was a little bit impatient with it, and there's just no way around it. You, you, you have to deal with it. Um, so, for instance, look at verse 2. You shall have no other gods before me. And then, I'm sorry, that's verse 3. And then verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Well, is that another command, or is that the same command? And, and historically, Luther came down on one side of that issue, and Calvin came down on the other. Augustine was on both sides of it. So, so he, 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 he sort of took both views. And, um, and, and we have to make a decision on this in order to arrive at both an understanding of what's being commanded and an understanding of how we're supposed to enumerate these 10 command, commandments that are here, these 10 words. So let's start back at, at uh, chapter 20, verse 1, and let's work through this text together with the first commandment. So we read here in Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, and we haven't read Exodus 19, but we did, we did go through that passage last week, and you'll remember that on this occasion, the mountain is quaking. And the Lord has come down on the mountain in fire. And, and we read in Exodus 19 that the mountain was smoking with this thick black smoke going up from the mountain like a kiln. And, and the people were trembling and they were terrified. And, and there was thick darkness and flashes of lightning and thunder. It was a momentous and terrifying occasion. And then out of the fire on the mountaintop, God speaks these words. And he begins in verse 2, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that is so instructive for us because it tells us that God doesn't save people by saying to them, here's the list of things that you need to accomplish. Here's a list of ways that you need to reform your character. Here's, here's a list of boxes that you need to be able to check, and if you fulfill all the requirements, then I will save you. That's not how it works. No, God is saying, I saved you. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he's brought them out. He's delivered them. And now he's telling them, you're about to enter into my house. And as you enter into my presence... In order for you to enjoy me, this is who, this is how you must live. That this, that, that's the way it works. We're, we're first delivered, and then he changes us by his word. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and maybe you're thinking about Christianity, and maybe you've had a thought like, well, I need to get my life right first. Or there are these things that, that I need to deal with about the way that I treat people or, or the way that I hab habitually react or, or, or whatever. It's not how God saves people. God saves sinners. And then sinners get transformed by the word of God. So I would encourage you, if you're here this morning and, and you're thinking about Christianity, you're exploring these things, I would say to you, trust the Lord. Believe him. Believe that God has accomplished salvation in Christ and believe that his word is powerful enough to save you. I mean, it's the word that spoke the world into existence. It's powerful enough to change your life. Now, before I keep reading here, let me draw your attention to verse 5 because I think here Moses has, has begun to um, show us what he's doing. The, verse, the first part of verse 5 reads, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then he says, For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. And then he goes out about himself, goes on about himself. Now, I want to propose to you that these, first, uh, these verses 2 through 5 are bracketed by the Lord's reference to himself as Yahweh your God. Verse 2, I am Yahweh your God. Verse 5, I, Yahweh your God, 
am a jealous God. I think that Moses is using those two statements as, as bookends. And then what we have in the rest of verse 5, I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That may look familiar to you. That's actually what the, part of what the Lord is going to say to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 when on that great occasion... Sorry about that. On that great occasion, um, the Lord says, uh, Moses says to the Lord, please show me your glory. And the Lord grants his request. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and then he passes before him, and he proclaims his name. And, and what we've just read in verse 5 is part of what the Lord says on that occasion. Now, I would suggest to you that that material verses 5 and 6 there, matches verse 2. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then this is the kind of God that I am. And, and the kind of God that he is, in verse 5, he's, he's a jealous God. Meaning, he's like a husband who doesn't want to share his wife with other men. And doesn't want his wife acting like she's going to show affection to other men. And this is altogether righteous of the Lord to be this way. This is not unwarranted jealousy. This is not um, petty jealousy that is, that is somehow hypersensitive or something like that. No, this is the living God who deserves absolute devotion. And he is righteously jealous for the hearts of his people. And then it says... There in verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Uh, I think what, he, what he's saying there is, um, he, he's warning people, if you respond wrongly to me, it's going to have negative consequences for your children. So, you know, sometimes wicked people will think, I'm living for myself and I'm living for the legacy that I'm going to, to establish in my children. And we're going to establish a dynasty and we're going to accomplish all this greatness. And the Lord is saying, if, that's the, if you're hating me and you're thinking you're going to accomplish that kind of greatness for your kids, you need to think again. I will visit your iniquity upon the following generations. And, and we can trust that the Lord will always do this in justice. And then he says in verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Which is, it's a, it's a promise, isn't it? It's, a, it's a, a, a statement that's meant to woo people. It's meant to say, love me and keep my commandments. And I will show steadfast love to thousands of generations, the Lord is saying. Okay, so I think, as I've said, verse 2 and verse 5 serve as brackets. And that means that I think the three you shall not statements in verses 3, 4, and 5... So there's three. I think those are actually one command. So verse, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And you notice that um, this language of before me makes it sound like there's going to be some other god in front of him. And I think that's exactly the idea. The, it's as though the Lord is saying, once you get the, the tabernacle built and once you get the Holy of Holies established... You put no other God in there in front of me. You shall have no other gods before me. And then to develop this idea, he says in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in, in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So the carved image, I, I think, is an exposition of the no other gods and then Further expositing this, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am Yahweh your God. So all three of those I'm proposing to you, you think about this, and I'm, I know it blows up the confessions, and I know it blow, the, the, our Reformed confessions, and I know it blows up all the references to the second commandment being the one about no images, but are we going to go with the Bible, and are we going to follow the cues in the text? Or is our reading of the Bible going to be determined for us by things like the Westminster Confession of Faith? And I would urge you to be somebody that prioritizes the Bible. 
And so I, I think here that the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness, and then you shall not bow down, before, bow down to them or serve them. I think these are, are standing at the center, and, the, and that the central one is really you shall not make for yourself a carved image, and that's bracketed by no other gods before me and not bow down to them or serve them. And we should ask, what is this really driving at? Well, it's really driving at the worship of the one true and living God, isn't it? That's what it's driving at. It's calling us to know and worship God. That's what the first commandment's about. Knowing and worshiping God. Well, this is kind of a long statement. Verses 1 through 6, I'm proposing to you, is all this one commandment, no other gods before me, which means no images, and it means no bowing down and worshiping and serving them. Worship God alone. That's a long statement. It's going to be followed by a short statement. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Notice how there are references to taking the name of the Lord in vain at the beginning and the end of verse 7. And in the center is this warning, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. So again, I think there's a, a sort of um, mirrored or paneled structure to verse 7, just as there was to verses 1 through 5. There's a, there's a, a stair step or pedimental structure to these statements. And, and we can ask, what is this about? What does it mean not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain? Well, I think first and foremost, what it means is you don't swear falsely by the Lord's name. You don't say, um, by Yahweh, I pledge to do thus and so. And then, meanwhile, you have your fingers crossed behind your back and you don't intend to keep that commandment. No, if you take his name, you speak the truth. You let your yes be yes and your no be no. But there's also a kind of connotation here, I think, of, of bearing the name of the Lord. It, we could almost render this, you shall not bear the name of the Lord. I mean, the, the word that's translated take often ref, references someone picking something up to carry it. So I think not only does this speak directly to oaths and vows, it also speaks to your whole life. And it's as though Moses is saying, you are to be the people who carry the name of Yahweh. That's who you are. So you worship him alone, and everything that you do reflects the character of Yahweh. Everything that you do shows forth who your God is. And in that way, you don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So first, a, a long statement, and I think the, the negatives, you know, the do-nots, are, are accompanied by a positive, a do, which is worship God. And here again, this negative, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God, is implying a do, and it's, I think, let your yes be yes, and also reflect the character of God. It, it's almost as though the Lord is, is saying to Israel, remember the way I created Adam in my image and likeness and told him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that my character would be seen everywhere. It's as though that's what the Lord is saying to Israel when he's urging them, commanding them that they are not to take the name, his name, in vain. So we, got, we had long, then we had short, now we've got another long one. And the long one starts in verse 8. And this one, too, is, is uh, mirrored or paneled or pedimental. You know, I'm using all these words to stay away from that one word that starts with a C. If you're a visitor, I'm talking about this word chiasm, which is this Greek letter X, and, and, and that's the way these things are structured. So look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now look at the end of this unit, verse 11. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
Look down at verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And then verse 10. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Look down again at at the end of verse 11. And rested on the seventh, seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So these statements about uh, the Lord making it holy, the work for six days, and then resting the seventh day on the Sabbath, they match one another. And in the center, you have the command. On it, in the middle of verse 10, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Nobody is to work. Now, I think we should stop and ask, what is this commandment about? Well, you know, the, the reference in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day, that recalls creation. And you'll remember when we were in Genesis 1 and 2 that I proposed that this passage was telling us about the king building his palace, his, his cosmic temple, building the world as the place that he would inhabit. And you see this kind, of, this kind of idea in various places in the Bible. For instance, when the Lord says in Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? He's saying, look, I built my house. It's the world in which you dwell. That's what I intend to be my holy of holies. And so once a king builds his house, what does he do? He rests in his house. And, and this is the way that we use our houses, isn't it? We, we go out to do our work, and then we come home and we rest in our homes. And I would suggest to you also that this is the way the, the, way the author of Hebrews is talking about houses in Hebrews 3 and 4. When he's, when he's talking about how Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ was faithful in God's house as a son. And then a few lines later, he says, the author of Hebrew does, we are that house, we who have believed. We are that house if we hold fast our profession of faith. He's saying that the people of God are now the temple. And so, so under the old covenant, God builds his temple and then he takes up rest in his dwelling place. And then he commands Israel. It's as though he's saying, you're coming to dwell with me. You're coming to live in my presence. I'm going to give you this tabernacle where I'm going to take up residence. And the first thing you need to know is no other gods are to come into this, this tabernacle. So don't make any carved images and don't bow down and serve them and put them in my holy place. That's my holy place. And you're mine. And you bear my name in your life. And then thirdly, on the seventh day, you're going to rest. You're going to rest because you dwell with me. That this is, I think this is what uh, Remember the Sabbath is about. And... What's interesting is that here in Exodus 20, it's connected to creation in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. Which, incidentally, sounds to me like Moses thinks those six days were six normal days. Um, so, you know, I think we should think about the world and think about the Bible the way that the biblical authors thought about the world and the way that they talked about things. So, um, that's the way I want to think about it. Interestingly, over in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when, when these commandments are restated, the part about creation is left out. And instead, in Deuteronomy 5, what's stated is something along the lines of, for you were a slave in Egypt. And it's like the Lord is saying, you know, slaves don't get days off. You were slaves in Egypt, but I redeemed you for myself, and so you're going to enjoy rest in my presence on the seventh day. So what's, what's commanded here? I would, I would urge you to the conclusion that what's commanded here is not an onerous kind of restriction that keeps you from doing things that you want to do. Rather, I would urge you to the conclusion that what's, what's commanded here is something like this. Enjoy my royal reign. Enjoy living under me as king. That's what the Lord is saying. And then, you know, if you want to press me and you want to say something like, well, does that mean that we, we can't do certain things on certain days of the week? I'm going to point you to Romans 14, where Paul says, one man considers one day holy, another man considers every day alike, and then he doesn't say, 
You need to be sure to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Rather, he says, let each one be convinced in his own mind. So I think if, if you feel constrained by your conscience to rest one day in seven, that's great. I would observe that Saturday is the Sabbath, and I would observe that the New Testament doesn't say something like, uh, we've switched the Sabbath to Sunday. It just doesn't make that kind of assertion. Um, so, so if you want to, that's great. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. If you're convinced that every day is alike and that every day, this is the position I would take, every day you should enjoy the goodness of God's reign. Every day you should, you should rest in Christ, the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Every day you should enjoy his kingly reign in your life. I would urge you to do that, whatever, however you come down on what you should do on Sunday or the Lord's Day. Enjoy his good reign. So commandment number one, worship God alone. Commandment number two, bear his name, reflect his character. Commandment number three, this long, we, we, we had long, then short, now long again. Enjoy God's good reign. There's a lot more that we could say about that. Uh, but, but we come to this next commandment which is another short one. And we come to this one in verse 12, where it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this commandment I would, I would uh, propose to you is an umbrella statement that, that amounts to something like, Honor, or, you know, literally, you could translate this glorify. It's the same word that's often rendered um, with, with glory or, or glorify or, or that, that, those kind, that kind of language. Glorify the authorities in your life. I think father and mother are like, are like representative of all of the authority structures in the world. And this is maybe the, well, they're all countercultural, aren't they? Because we live in a world that's just full of gods. We live in a world where people profane the name of God all over the place, where nobody wants to enjoy God's kingly rule, and everybody thinks it's time to cast off all authorities. But this commandment is urging us to honor the authorities in our lives, starting with mom and dad. Honor your father and mother. It, it instills a principle that says, Whoever is in authority over you, whether it's the, the CEO of the company that you work for, or the teacher in the classroom where you're a student, or uh, the, the, the chairman of the board on which you serve as a board member, or the head coach, and you're the assistant coach of the team, honor the authorities that God has placed in your life. And, and this works all the way up, really, to God. Because, because by honoring these lower authorities, you're honoring the ultimate authority. Now, I, I should directly address myself to everybody in the room because everybody in the room is a child of somebody. Whether you're young or old, you got, you got parents. Maybe your parents are deceased. There are still ways that you can honor your parents. I know not everybody's parents are honorable. I know not everybody's parents deserve glory. I want to propose to you that you can be honest and you can be truthful and you can still be somebody that sets out to obey this commandment. You, you can be somebody that honors your father and your mother. I mean, because you're alive, right? They didn't abandon you. They, 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 somebody changed your diapers, Somebody fed you. Somebody made it where you were sustained when you couldn't keep yourself alive. We, all of us who are alive, have so much to be grateful for. And many of us have parents that are, that are very much worthy of honor. So we want to be people who honor God by honoring our parents. So I would, I would enumerate the first four commandments this way. No other gods, that's verses 1 through uh, 6, <clears throat> and that's a long one. Then a short one, um, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, verses, verse 7. And, and then a long one, um, enjoy God's kingly reign, or remember the Sabbath, and that's verses 8 through 11. And then a short one, 
verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Those, those first four commandments, uh, they take 145 Hebrew words to communicate. The next six commandments take 26 Hebrew words to communicate. And you can look at them. I mean, they get separate verses like verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. They're just staccato statements, just rapid-fire, machine-gun-like bullets that come flying at us. And, and so the first four, um, they're, they're, they're these expansive, long, elaborate communications. And then the last six are just boom, 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 six straight uh, commandments. You shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, and so forth. I think there's a, a logic to this. I think, I think that Moses, um, well, the Lord communicated this to Moses this way, and then Moses uh, rightly presented it to us the way it was communicated to him. And, and so let me reflect with you first on the first four, and I want to propose that the, the first and the fourth kind of match one another. No other gods, worship God alone, glorify his authorities. And, and you heard me applying that saying, you honor the Lord by honoring the authorities. And then the two in the center, I think, also go together, reflect his character, enjoy his good reign. We reflect his character by enjoying him, by resting when he wants us to rest, by, by knowing that in all, all that we do, we are meant to be reflecting who he is. So I think the the outer ones match and the inner ones match. Worship God, glorify his authorities, reflect his character, enjoy his good reign. Similarly, I think there's a logic, a progression to the final six. So let me just read through them quickly and then we'll reflect on, on their logic together. Starting with verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. I think that's actually commandment number nine. And then commandment 10 is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So there are, I, th I, I take this to be two commandments against coveting. The first being not coveting your neighbor's house, meaning, you know, like the structure uh, where he lives. We're, we're not to look at our neighbor and say, uh, I want that house for myself. And then secondly, we're not to covet his wife or any of his people, any, any, um, anything that belongs, his people or his animals, and say, I want, I, I want what he has. Okay, so um, let, let's think together about these. I would, I would suggest that the first and the last um, uh, there's, a, there's a logical relationship between them. You shall not murder. That's the thir uh, uh, verse 13, commandment number 5. I think that goes with, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And I think there's a, there's a connection there. Because to, to think in your heart, I want what he has in this covetous way, is implicitly to declare, and I would kill him to have it. I want him dead and out of the way so that I can have what he, what he has. And we extend that to uh, all these other things that are listed here, his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The Lord, it seems to me, is saying to his people, I have given to you what you have, and I want you to enjoy what I've given to you, and I want you to be content with what I've given to you. So you enjoy what you have. Don't want what someone else has been given. And then um, the, the sixth commandment here, you shall not commit adultery, I think also goes with um, what I've enumerated as the ninth, or what I think is naturally enumerated as the ninth, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Uh, and, 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 you know, house and wife, they, they, they go together naturally. They, these are not distinct things so much. You, you read in the Proverbs about how wisdom has built her house. It's very much the case that 
the, the woman is going to, the, the wife is going to establish the household. So you, you, don't desi- you don't wrongly desire your neighbor's house and you don't wrongly desire your neighbor's wife. And if you do, you're implicitly murdering your neighbor as you adulterously desire either what he has or who he has. To covet a man's wife is to want him dead. To covet his house is to want him dead so that you can plunder him. And then verse 15, you shall not steal. Well, uh, you you steal from people. You're you're taking uh, what belongs to them away. And I think that's matched with uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, and, and, And often thieves are deceptive. And, and so it's, it's easy to imagine how all of these, these prohibited behaviors, they all go together to say, I hate my neighbor. I, hate, I don't love my neighbor. I don't want my neighbor to enjoy God's goodness to him. I want his good gifts for myself. And, and similarly, the first four, they all join together to say, don't hate God. Love God. Enjoy God. And, and so we, we can see how Jesus could say the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. To, to bear false witness, verse 16 there, the eighth of these commandments, to bear false witness is to conceal idolatrous, commandment number one, dishonorable, bearing the name of the Lord in vain, commandment number two, shameful, discontented, disregard for God's good kingly reign in your life, murderous, adulterous, thieving sin. That's that's what bearing false witness does. So these commandments, they all... They all go together. They all pile up on one another. And, and the antidote for all of them is the first. You worship the Lord. You, if, if you worship God and have no other gods before you, and you want to live in a life that doesn't bear his name in vain, that reflects his character, well, these things are not going to be burdensome, are they? In fact, This is what it looks like to bear God's name. You could almost say that worshiping God alone, commandment one, and not bearing his name in vain, commandment two, is going to lead to enjoying his kingly reign, number three, honoring parents, number four, and then loving neighbor, five through ten. These things all naturally go together. And there's, there's so much that we could reflect on. Uh, there's so, so, so much we could say from Psalm 119. I just want to draw your attention to one verse here. Psalm 119, verse 88, where the psalmist prays, In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. You hear the connection between give me life that I may keep your testimonies. Give me life so that I can obey is really the substance of the prayer. So the the Ten Commandments are urging love for God and love for neighbor. Look with me at the, the end of this passage in verses 18 through 21. We read here, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, so that's everything that we read about in Exodus 19, they see the the visual effects of God coming down on the mountain, and it's, it's glorious and imposing. When they see all this, it says there in verse 18, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Now look down at verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness 
where God was. This passage is going to open and close with references to the manifestations of God, the thick darkness and the smoke and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, all this, this glory of God appearing. And then the people are standing far off and Moses alone draws near. And that stands in such stark contrast to where we find ourselves. Because the people are not going to be able to enter into God's presence until that tabernacle is built and until that sacrificial system is put in place. And then they can enter the camp, but they can't go into the holy place. And they certainly can't go into the holy of holies on pain of death. So we see here in verse 19, they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. And in this context, they're right. God is deadly to them because the sacrificial system is not in place and, and, and they're in danger from his holiness. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, this is paradoxical, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So don't be afraid, fear God. Don't be afraid. He's not going to break out against you and kill you. But he has come to test you that the fear of, you may, of him may be before you that you may not sin. So God wants the people to obey the commandments, to inhabit his presence. And the only way they can do that is if they fear him. Only Moses could draw near then to the thick darkness where God was. And only Moses could hear the Lord speaking. And here again, we think of the book of Hebrews, where he opens his book saying it many times and in many ways in the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then later in the book, he speaks of how we have this great high priest over the house of God through whom we draw near. The author of Hebrews is urging his people to hold fast the confession of faith and draw near into the very presence of God. So I think these commandments very much apply to us, but this is not our covenant. We are not relating to God under the old covenant. Praise God. We don't have to go to the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus has put all that away and and I think that the, the specific requirements for obedience that the Israelites had, things like resting on the seventh day, which would be Saturday, and, and not doing any work on that day, I think that specific commandment, it's like, it's like circumcision. Um, the, the, you know, circumcision is even farther back than the Ten Commandments. It's part of the covenant with Abraham. And interestingly, Paul says very similar things in 1 Corinthians 7, and in Galatians 5, about circumcision. I want to read you these two verses because they get at, they get at, I think, how we're supposed to respond to the Ten Commandments. So first, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So he's saying, look, circumcision, and that's irrelevant. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. And you might think, well... Keeping the commandments of God still sounds kind of burdensome. It almost sounds legalistic. Well, listen to the parallel in Galatians 5, where Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither, un neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Really similar, isn't it? But only faith working through love. Faith, believing God, working through love. Loving God, loving neighbor. And I think if we were to say to Paul, Paul, what do you mean in 1 Corinthians 7, 19 when you say keeping the commandments of God? I think he would say, well, faith working through love. Trusting God and loving him and loving his people. And if we do those things, we'll be worshiping God. We'll be reflecting his character. We'll be enjoying his good reign. We'll be glorifying the authorities that he's put into our lives. And we'll be loving our neighbor. We won't be murdering, committing adultery, thieving, lying, coveting house or coveting wife. We'll be loving those to whom these things are given. In Christ Jesus, 
in Christ Jesus, God has brought righteousness to those who believe, and he is the end of the law for those who believe. And in Christ Jesus, we fulfill the commandments of God. We obey the law of Christ, and we live out what it looks like to bear God's name, to call on him, to worship him alone, to enjoy his kingly reign. The last thing I'll say about these Ten Commandments is it, it, it is interesting the way that it's like the first four, they relate to God, and then the last six, they relate to people. And you could almost say there's a priestly dimension to the first four, and then a royal dimension to the last six, so, so that God is creating his people as a royal priesthood. And of course, we know that 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that's what we have been made. We are God's holy nation, his royal priesthood. And we want to worship him as priests, and we want to reign as those who love. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the good word that you've given to us. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that we don't need to somehow correct it in any way. We thank you, Lord, that, that you create what you command, that your word gives life. And we thank you, Lord, that your spirit works so that when we, when we hear your word, you cause us to want to obey. You cause us to desire to please you. And Lord, I pray that that would be the case for us. I pray that you would make us a royal priesthood. And Lord, I pray also that perhaps through, through this time that we've had together in your word this morning, by your life-giving word, you might have quickened hearts and given eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would sustain new life, and I pray that if there are people who have come to faith, that they would feel a burden to share the good news to communicate to others that they, they now trust you and they now seek to walk with Jesus and they now see their salvation as having been accomplished in his death and resurrection. And Lord, I pray that you would grant them the gift of full repentance from their sin and enable them to, to know what it looks like to turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Lord, we love you, and we would sing your praise together now. In Christ's name, amen.